the Martini Henry rifle. The rifle carried by most of the soldiers during the Anglo-Zulu War. It's a legendary weapon and one we've talked about during the first six episodes of this podcast. But this is a channel for geeks, people like me who want to go deeper, and that's exactly what we're going to do today. I'm joined by Rob from the British Muzzle Loaders YouTube channel. Rob's from Canada and really knows his stuff. He fires these weapons regularly. He knows them inside out. If you want to see the weapon in action, go to his channel, youtube.com slash British Muzzle Loaders, where you'll see lots of videos that help to illustrate the chit chat we're about to have. In this interview, we're gonna talk about the caliber, the rate of fire, the kick, did it hurt? Was it as painful as people said? But first, we're gonna start off by talking about the history of this amazing weapon. So I guess the, the story of the Martini, and, and it, it begins really with the, the end of the muzzleloading era, and that would have been sort of the mid to late 1860s. Uh, at that particular time, the, the sort of biggest military event going on and, and just ending would have been the American Civil War. And that was perhaps the, uh, the last sort of hurrah of the military muzzle-loading, at the time, rifle. Initially, in British and Empire service, the, the thought is, well, we need to develop a new rifle then. And we need something that's going to move forward. And there's a lot of, you know, firearms development happening uh, at, in this period, the sort of late 1860s and 1870s. And uh, they realized that in order to produce something that's going to be meaningful for the next few years and, you know, many number of years, that there's a few leaps we have to take. And in order to take those leaps, we need some time. So what, what they end up doing is running a series of trials that are focused on what can we use as a stopgap. And that stopgap comes ultimately in the form of the Snyder. And the Snyder Enfield, as it becomes known as, is an adoption or a modification of the P-53 by the simple you know, um, uh, procedure of cutting the back of the barrel off where the bolster and the nipple would have been with the Enfield and threading the barrel and screwing that onto what was called the shoe, which was the breech mechanism that was developed by a Snyder, Jacob Snyder. And in doing so, they're able to rapidly convert and then reissue essentially the P-53 in breech-loading form. And what year would that so, have been, Rob, more or less? So that was uh, 1866 through – the issue across the empire was generally complete by 1669 or so. There's no specific date, obviously, because you know the farther away from home you are in terms of the empire, things are going to get there later. An interesting uh, sidebar, though, to, to the adoption of the Snyder um, as this stopgap to – to hold off, uh, or sorry, to introduce breech loading as quick as possible, yet not perhaps in the form that was ultimately wanted, um, was actually Canada. Canada had uh, had been actually invaded um, in 1866, just after the, turn, the end of the American Civil War, by uh, the Fenian Brotherhood, which, without getting into the politics of Irish nationalism, which <laughs> it was obviously involved with, but there was such a, a large Irish um, population in the United States that were still Irish, that they had emigrated or moved in, uh, and whatnot into the United States. Many of them had fought during the American Civil War on, um, and had military experience. And the Fenian Brotherhood at the time has uh, had a resurgence 
And their idea was to take the fight to the enemy, like our cultural enemy being, you know, the English or the Great Britain, um, through any means possible. And we have so many of us over here in North America, in the United States in particular, that what can we possibly do to strike out and, you know, do damage? Um, we can't fight the English at home uh, in England or in Ireland for that matter. But you know what? Canada's over there just across the river or across the lake, depending on where you are. Well, why don't we just ramp up, uh, get it all together. We'll, we'll, we'll get some funding. We'll get some uniforms and get some weapons and we'll take the fight to the British that way. And that's what they end up doing. And they launch an invasion of Canada in 1866, which the, 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 um, perhaps the biggest action is the Battle of Ridgeway, which is inconclusive at best. Um, it is the first real action of the modern Canadian army. And it uh, takes place just across on the Niagara Peninsula, across from Buffalo, uh, New York, and which is where the, the Fenians launched their invasion from. Uh, they fight a, as I say, a bit of an inconclusive battle. There are good points and bad points to take away from the performance of the Canadian militia that day. Uh, they are the militia. It is a part-time um, um, army uh, that is seen uh, to augment the, the British regulars that are still stationed in Canada at the time. Uh, the fighting is done exclusively by the militia. The, the British regulars don't arrive in time because of distance that they have to travel. But uh, because the battle is relatively inconclusive, it, we, the Canadian militia is not able to drive the Fenians off of Canadian soil, for instance. Um, and there becomes a bit of a running battle back um, around the peninsula. But the overarching, looming concept there is the fact that the regulars are coming. It, uh, it, they, they mobilize out of Hamilton, Ontario, and they start making their way down. And so the, the writing's on the wall that the Fenians realize that, boy, things the, are closing in on us here. And they end up withdrawing back into the United States and thereby it, it defecting uh, an end to the, the, the uh, invasion. So I know I'm getting a bit of a tangent there, but that in Canada sparks the understanding that we need to protect Canada from an empire standpoint. And one of the first places that this new Snyder breechloader goes is Canada to re-equip the militia so that they're able to deal with this, this threat that still exists. Um, and actually the Fenians try again in 1870. This time they're met with the Snyder and defeated. So, so it made an um, immediate impact then. For sure. Um, and in, in Canada specifically, but also the Snyder, uh, there's a, a great bit of anecdotal history regarding the Abyssinian campaign in 1868, which was generally regarded as being the first um, campaign featuring the Snyder, in this case by the British regulars. And uh, there's a bit of journalism, actually, that is written um, detailing an action outside of Magdala that um, – the Abyssinians, rather than fighting from their fortress there, they come out and they want to meet the uh, the column head on in the field. And they launch their attack and are met with fire from the Snyder, which initially is basically, I mean, from that first exchange is not much different than the P-53, the, the old muzzle-loading rifle. But what, of course, the Snyder has in its uh, back pocket is rapid reloading. And they're met again very quickly by another exchange of musketry and and the battle is decisively won. Um, and incidentally, it was won in extended order. 
That is to say that the troops have deployed into a skirmish order as opposed to being shoulder to shoulder because the firepower afforded by the Snyder was, was so much greater that it could hold – one could hold a section of ground with much fewer men. So you could spread them out more and thereby increasing your frontage and meeting this vastly um, uh, superior numbers anyway, um, uh, attacking army. So – Breach loading is, uh, you know, to think about and talk about it today. Of course, it, it's it, a big deal, and of course, it's a it's a, a a leap in capability. But you know, these anecdotes show that yes, indeed, it, it is, and the the circumstances that they were used is particularly interesting to me. So I know we've got off on the the initial question there. Um, the Snyder is pushed out to the Empire, and of course Canada being one of the first places it gets. But the the reequipping of the the uh, the army is done very quickly with, by the turn of the the next decade. So uh, by 1870, the army's generally uh, uh, in Britain and in Canada, uh, as mentioned, is equipped with a Snyder. This brings that ar- the army to that first sort of step of breech loading. That the Snyder maintained the caliber of the old P53 because it was obviously a um, uh, a derivative of it and it fired a bullet of a similar weight and dimension so nominally 577 in caliber the ammunition of course was the second part to this breech loading um, uh, aspect that was as important as the mechanism itself which is the self-contained cartridge which obviously in the muzzle loading area uh, era was impossible to to do when eventually the the time that the Snyder buys the empire so to speak in developing um, a new rifle they are able to uh, arrive at a design that meets a number of uh, key criteria i would say the first and foremost is a purpose design for breech loading and that comes from the martini action and this is a a bit of a, an interesting story unto itself. There's some there's patent issues. The it's um, uh, the Peabody, the Swiss involvement in it, and all these different aspects to it. In the end, they essentially get what they want, which is this action, and it's ours now. <laughs> and they mate that to a style of barrel that uh, had been developed in the muzzle loading era. Uh, that this style of barrel uh, at the very end of the muzzleloading era is different in a couple of ways. One, it uses uh, a peculiar type of rifling, that the actual dimensions and the shape of the grooves are, or, or the, the, the internal structure, but also in its size. And the Martini marks a, de, a decided sort of departure from the Snyder at, in that regard. And in moving forward with this new rifle, they decide that the the small bore is what they call it at the time. The small bore rifle is the way of the future. And at the time of the Snyder and the Enfield, which is 577 in caliber, the small bore is 45.45 inch. So the rifle, the service rifle, reduces in caliber from 577 of an inch to 45 of an inch. Um, but the weight of the bullet generally remains the same, around 480 grains or so. So what that means is a much longer, skinnier bullet, which is better ballistically. Um, it has better penetration. And there's a lot of details about the, the ammunition they select uh, to with this new rifle that are um, 
it meets some of the criteria they're looking for. They're looking for penetration. They're looking for range. They're looking for velocity. And the small bore offers all of this. So in that time, the Snyder buys them. They come up with a new rifle. And as they say, the, the action is named after Martini. And the barrel, the rifling, is named after uh, Henry. So the Martini-Henry rifle comes into service with the uh, adoption officially in 1871. Now, that mean, doesn't mean the Army has the Martini in 1871. That means the design has been finalized and it's, the decision is made that this is going to be our rifle. So after that comes production. And what you see is the issue of the Martini from the early to mid-1870s. So, you know, 1872, 3, 4, that, that kind of time frame is when the Martini finally gets pushed uh, to the Army at large across the Empire. And with it comes a, a large degree of, of um, how, what's the word, uh, capability. One of the, the issues of the older style of rifle was the fact that that big 577 bullet, although it can reach out to what today would be almost a kilometer, 900 yards, the, the rifle was sighted to, um, you know, in order to get there, it has to fly. It's flying very slowly, so it's got to go very high. And what that means is that when it does get to that range, it's falling at such an angle. It's not falling straight down, but it's falling at such an angle that to hit a, a target, a standing man or a horse or, or, or an artillery battery or something like that, which is vertical in nature, because of the angles involved, that bullet is falling so steeply that the window you have to actually sight correctly, estimate the range, set your sights and aim correctly, the window that you have to hit somebody at that range is so minute that uh, it can be done. So and they need you, to be standing still, essentially. Um, not so much that. It's it's the fact that you need to fire uh, such a minute deviation in, in your elevation is going to is going to cause you to either fall short or or or, or pass your target. So, militarily speaking, you know that's that's a, a something that you want to minimize, right? And you minimize that by increasing your velocity and flattening the trajectory of the bullet, because by flattening the trajectory of the bullet. You enable that that angle that the bullet is falling to the ground at to be flatter. And what this means in terms of close range is an increase in your point blank range. Your point blank range is a lot of people perhaps think that it just means being really close so you can't miss, which is a misinterpretation of that. Now, the part about not missing is somewhat accurate. But what it means is that by firing a bullet at your target, which for all intents and purposes is going to be in a military context, a man, is that for the, whatever the range you set it to or, or whatever the point blank range is, the bullet will not fly higher than the man. So anywhere in between, you will hit a person. So if you set, uh, in the case of the Martini, it's around 400, 500 yards that the bullet will not fly higher. And it will land at the feet at 500 yards. So as long as you're aiming at the person's feet, between four or five, the, the, the numbers particularly escaping me right now, but it's around that range and closer, you're going to hit them. So that that too close to miss, that's where that comes from. But right, the, the, makes sense. What, what the small bore rifle and the martini does is it, it, it by flattening the trajectory, making the bullet fly faster, and keeping its weight, it means it will fly farther before it travels higher than a man. So that increases your capability. 
and it makes your target easier to hit because the range estimation to basically land the bullet on your target as opposed to putting it through your target, that that relationship shifts and that, that point moves farther out. So militarily speaking, it's a it's a greatly increased capability. You know, the Snyder is firing a bullet at about 1,100 or so, 70 grains of powder behind a, a 5.77 bullet. It's around 1,000, 1,100, something like that. The Martini is firing at 13. So when you look at diagrams that are showing the trajectory, which are always, you know, in the air, they're like rainbows because they all were. But the Martini's rainbow is flatter. And you, you progress through history and they get flatter, flatter, and flatter, and flatter. And one day there won't be any because it'll be a laser beam, right? I mean, that's where we're going. Yeah. Is that you, you, won't, you won't be able to miss at, you know, extended ranges. And that's just because the bullet's flying faster and flatter. So, I mean, the Martini is something that uh, brings this capability. Um, so the, the, the breach mechanism, which is fast, it's efficient, it is a essentially a two-motion. You open it and you close it. And as long as you put a round in, in the rifle in between those two steps, it'll fire. Whereas the Snyder involves, I believe, nine steps. Uh, I made a count. You know, in terms of half-cocking the hammer, opening the breech, uh, pulling the breech block back to eject the casing, tipping the rifle over to to dump the casing out, and then putting the new round in and closing the breech and then full-cocking the hammer and aiming and firing. The Martini just diminishes all that. So the rate of fire is going to be faster. Uh, which is a point we can perhaps touch on later, but uh, again, a bit of a red herring when it comes to rate of fire. Um, the uh, marching into the 1870s, then the the army's equipped with, for all intents and purposes, um, a, a modern breech-loading rifle that has a powerful round. It's not only powerful in terms of range, but it's also powerful in terms of its penetration. It's made out of a 12 to one uh, lead to tin ratio, which for all the metallurgists, the military bullet metallurgists out there is quite hard. So it, it survives, you know, penetrating through wood. It's able to penetrate through through wood. We're not talking about penetrating armor at this point in time because it is still lead. But uh, uh, generally speaking, you know, that's one of the things they're looking for. But also because you're driving it quicker uh, through the barrel is that you need it a little bit. You can't use pure lead like the Snyder because it was traveling slow. You need something that's harder that will withstand that shock of being pushed down the barrel. And you need a harder alloy of lead in order to accomplish that. So what we end up with by the mid-1870s issued across the empire is the Mark I, which becomes the Mark I-II, which becomes the Mark II, which eventually ends up being the Mark III Martini Henry. They're all operationally identical. There are some mechanical differences between the Mark I and II, which are upgraded in the I-II version. Uh, but generally speaking, they all operate the same way. They all very simple. They all have the same kind of sighting. They all fire the same ammunition. So differentiating between them, militarily speaking, is very – like it doesn't matter. Whether yeah. you have a 1, 2, or a 3, it operates exactly the same, fires the same ammunition, has exactly the same capabilities. So. Well, I and that's to... what the Army has going, going into the Zulu War. Well, on, on that note, you were talking about the size of the bullet. I'm kind of interested for people who maybe, you know, use modern day firearms. What is that caliber? I'm just trying to think, how would you compare the caliber, the size of the bullet, let's say, for the Martini Henry with, say, a modern NATO standard round? Like, what is it? A 5.56. Uh, there we go. Rob's, Rob's holding up a, a bullet as we speak. It's hard yeah, to tell, but of, it looks pretty big. <laughs> it's a bit of fisherman's forced perspective here because I'm holding it a bit closer. But... <laughs> 
it is noticeably bigger than anything out there today until you get into some crazy wildcat cartridges. It, uh, as they say, it's 45 caliber, but it's bottleneck. So uh, for our American cousins who are familiar with the 4570 uh, round, which is the standard military rifle or rifle round shot out of the trapdoor Springfield, as an example, through the latter half of the, uh, the 19th century, um, its name derives from the 45 caliber and 70 grains of powder. The Martini Henry round is in the same parlance of 4585 in a different, as I say, bottleneck round. One of the initial experiments they do is they try and uh, use the uh, the technique with the Snyder, which was basically a straight-walled case, and they try and make that in the new Martini style, the, the 45 caliber, so the, the bullet with a long, slender uh, foil case. And what they realize is that by putting 85 grains of powder, which gives them the, the velocities that they want, the cartridge is too long and it's too fragile. So they end up developing what amounts to one of the first bottlenecked rounds. And you can see that for the, uh, in the, uh, the, the video there, that about half its length is wider and the, the back half, obviously. So it's very modern in its shape because most uh, uh, bullets today, or projectile, sorry, uh, cartridges today are bottlenecked to some degree. Um, in doing so, they adopt, uh, it, the official designation is, you know, the 45, I can't, I have to look in the list of changes to get the, yeah. the actual designation of it. The modern um, uh, designation of it of the cartridge is 577450. That doesn't mean it's a modified Snyder bullet or cartridge. What it means is that the back half corresponds dimensionally, generally, to the old Snyder case. So that the back, the, the rim, which this is obviously a modern reproduction, it doesn't have the, the exact uh, type of, uh, of rim uh, that the, uh, the, the rolled foil cartridge did. But the back half is made uh, in a, to similar dimensions as that of the Snyder. So that's where the 577 comes from. But then they have to neck, neck it down for the 45 caliber uh, aspect and the bullet itself. So when you talk of Martini ammunition, generally speaking, in the modern context, you speak of 577-450. And that is directly related to the Martini Henry. Um, because by doing and making that bottleneck, they've shortened the brass, they've given angles to it, and it results in a much stiffer, more robust cartridge. Now, the, the bullet itself weighs, as I mentioned before, around 480 grains, and it travels at about 1,300 feet per second. Uh, as far as you know, contemporary bullets go, it's about similar. Okay. And it's very much, very, very much there with the, the contemporary military ammunition of the day. There's, there's some that are going to be less, and there's some that are going to be greater. But generally speaking, as far as you know, a 45 caliber small bore, as they called it, um, projectile, with 85 grains of powder behind it, you're pushing it at about that speed, which is comparable across the board. So to, to take a quick little uh, step back, we talk about the Trapdoor Springfield for American Cousins, that uh, it has similarities with the Snyder in terms of its action, but what it doesn't have, it has a better ballistically projectile. The 45 caliber bullet is a much better ballistic ballistically, uh, rather speaking, uh, projectile to the 577. So in that sense, it's perhaps closer to the Martini as far as the capabilities of the round, the, the, the projectile go. But in terms of its action, 
it is, um, uh, I would say, perhaps a little bit more deficient in terms of its efficiency because the Martini design, being designed from a great, uh, the, the ground up and not being a modification of an earlier rifle, that uh, they could afford those design features. And the, the, the iconic you know, lever with the, that humpback kind of look to it with the, the falling breech block, um, you, know, it's, it, you can't get much more efficient in a single shot breech loading rifle for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of contemporary accounts talk about, you know, the power of the Martini Henry and the damage that it caused. Um, I mean, you've fired the weapon. For, for those of us who haven't been lucky enough to do so, can you talk us through what it's like to fire it, the recoil, and what sort of damage it did to people? Right. The, uh, it has a reputation of being you know, powerful, as you, as you mentioned, for sure. At 480 grains, traveling at 1,300 feet per second at the muzzle, anyway, um, is it travels a long way. The weight of that bullet, the 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 fact that it's a small bore, that it's you know long and, and it's not a round like musket ball. It's the weight is all contained in a, a small area cross sectionally as it's traveling through the air, so it 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 maintains that power for quite some distance. Uh, it when it hits you, it's going to it's going to put you down, for sure. Uh, it hits bone or something like that, um, much the same way as the the projectiles of an earlier era. That if it hits anything hard, it's it whatever that may be, it's going to literally explode. That it'll be shattered into a million pieces. So that if it does hit your you know an arm bone or leg bone or ribs or or, or whatnot, as far as we talk about the military context for sure, um, you know that part of the body is going to be you know catastrophically damaged. Um, the being twelve to one. Uh, lead tin, as they say, is quite hard. Um, that if it didn't hit something hard, it would travel right through you. And 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 how is it to fire the rifle? I mean, do you do you uh, the the rifle that you get to fire? Is it? Uh, I mean, how similar is the rifle that you fire to the one the guys would have been firing? Is it is it literally exactly the same? So my personal martini, I only have one. Uh, that's just the nature of sort of my interest and in what I do, but. Uh, it's a Mark One, so it is a fairly rare piece that has been unmodified. They found that the trigger mechanism in the Mark One was uh, it could use some tinkering and some improvements, so they did that, and they upgraded it uh, to the Mark One slash Two, which was then newly produced as the Mark Two. And uh, they just eliminated a couple of pieces in the trigger mechanism. Um, they made it a bit heavier and a bit more solid um but in terms of its use if you take away it's got a very light mine the mark one has a very light trigger to it um i maybe even uncomfortably light uh, which is very nice for target shooting but you have to be very wary of where your finger is because of course on the martini there is no safety so uh but as far as as what was used say in in, in zululand um, chances are it was uh, at the time Mark One slash Two, so the Mark One Two uh, version of the rifle, and that the Mark Ones were generally converted in British service. Uh, Canada actually bought twenty one hundred of them very early on, and then proceeded never to issue them <laughs> <laughs> because they felt the Snyder, which had been issued to everybody, was good enough for what we needed. So these twenty one hundred rifles, and mine appears to be one of those. Um, so it has some Canadian some Canadian provenance, and uh, and is an unmodified Mark One. But as I mentioned before, you know that the, doesn't matter what the Mark is; they all operate in exactly the same way. 
you open the breach, you put a round in, you close the breach, and you squeeze the trigger, and it fires. So the experience of firing it is uh, mine in particular would differ nothing in, apart from that that aspect of the the slightly light trigger, uh, but in terms of the, the the mechanics, the operation of it, it would differ in no degree from the experience that the guys who had been carrying it in the the Zulu war context would have would have had that it operates exactly the same way. Um, it, it's you know putting yourself in the context of the era, it you couldn't ask for really a better you know, operating single shot breech loader. And that, that's not to say that there aren't better rifles out there in terms of repeaters and, and, and whatnot, but a single shot breech loading action, I think it's very hard to, to get away from the Martini uh, in terms of, uh, of its effectiveness because it's so simple. It's just incredibly so. Can you talk us through it? Like, uh, you know, for people who are listening, can you kind of give a sort of uh, an idea of, of the mechanics of firing and, and how it actually feels physically? Sure. So um, when you load it, the first step obviously is to pull down on the lever and then uh, which then through a series of of linkages inside uh, drops the breech block, which exposes the chamber area. And uh, the top of the breech block is curved and it's also uh, got a sort of a trough that is milled into it. And these two features combine when it drops to form like a, a ramp that just the, the round of the, the will, will slide down that ramp and straight into the chamber, which you uh, do so with your thumb. So you just have it in your hand and it slides down that little ramp made by the top of the breech block as the, the projectile, the, the, the pointy end of the bullet, as it were, goes into the chamber. You just push with your thumb and it slides in nicely into the breech. And then you reach down and you lift up on the lever. And what that has done, that whole action has one chambered around, closed the breech block, and it's cocked the action inside, which is a striker inside. Uh, and at that point, the rifle's ready to fire. As I mentioned before, there's there's no safety on the Martini. So generally speaking, the rifle wasn't carried loaded. That it would be loaded at a time, um, if you were in a position where things were dangerous, if you were operating on the fringes of a column as uh, somebody who was part of an advanced guard, these kinds of aspects, chances are you would have had your rifle loaded, carried at the trail in the most safe way possible. But if you were marching in the column, you know, with, with the guns and the baggage and, and whatnot, chances are your rifle would have been unloaded because there was protection to the flanks. If something had happened, then it was such a simple evolution to turn chamber around on the command of whoever was in charge of you and you'd be ready to fire. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I know a lot of people often talk about the lack of the safety on the Martini and that, that how could you possibly design a weapon that doesn't have one, but it was just seen that it didn't need one. The initial marks did have a safety feature on them, but that was removed as being redundant or as being seen to be redundant anyway. So you've got this rifle now, it's ready to fire. There's a cocking indicator on the, the right-hand side of the receiver, the, the body of the, the rifle, which is then pulled to the slightly to the rear of the vertical. And it's a sort of a teardrop shape with a pointer that generally points straight up. And once you cock it, it sort of pulls to the rear. And, and that is showing you that the action has been cocked. It doesn't show you that it's loaded because it'll do the same whether there's a round in it or not. But it shows you that it's cocked so that you need to take care. Now, a true to form, uh, you know, when you're just shooting by yourself in terms of recreation, like, like, like I do, then, you know, you 
sight the rifle and you squeeze the trigger and you fire your round. In the military context, there would be commands associated with that, ranges given, sights were to be set in the appropriate ranges, and then the command would be given to fire uh, and you'd do so in an, using a number of different techniques. Um, as far as shouldering the rifle, as far as holding it when you fire it, it's very conventional completely, as any uh, non-pistol grip kind of rifle would be. Um, daddy's hunting rifle, you know, a shotgun. It, it, it doesn't have a pistol grip to it. Uh, so you're, you're holding the, the small of the, the wrist of the, the butt. Um, it you know, famously has got a little piece uh, milled out of the corner of the body that, that's knurled that is in order to place your thumb there. That uh, is one of the, I won't say misconceptions, but it actually doesn't talk about it specifically in the drill when you get into the, the book of it. But it's supposedly there so that you place your thumb on it, which is as opposed to wrapping your thumb around the back of the wrist, like you would typically with a rifle, because there's a risk of in doing so that this savage recoil of the rifle is going to drive it into your shoulder. And if you have your thumb hooked over the back of the, the wrist, it's going to hit you in the face and you're going to get your thumb driven into your nose. So by putting your thumb off to the side in this little tiny sort of oval that's been uh, milled out and knurled, that it alleviates the risk of you doing it, hitting yourself. Personally, I don't use it. I hook my thumb over the top, and I've never, ever had a problem. And talking um, of the recoil, I mean, that's something, you know, that, that's been discussed a lot. How, how, how hard is that kick? It, uh, I shoot 85 grains of, what in the modern context, uh, 2F powder. And that roughly equivalent, uh, is equivalent to sort of the powder used in the era. Um, it, you will never get quite there with modern powders. I think Swiss, quality-wise, is about as close as you're going to get nowadays to the black powder of the 19th century, which was of surprising quality. And that is, that's through information that has been – I've learned from, uh, amongst other people, um, an individual whose last name is Curtis – who's a stalwart member of the British Military Forum. And uh, he, is, as his name might suggest, is a descendant of one half of perhaps the most famous black powder manufacturer in all of Great Britain, which was Curtis and Harvey. So he has a bit of body of knowledge from the family, so to speak. And just in talking to him through the, through the forum, what a fantastic individual. Just the, the amount of knowledge that man has is unbelievable. Yeah. But um, generally speaking, the, the quality of the powder of the era was, was superior to what you would typically find today. So are we able to ever get exactly the, the, the aspects in terms of the fouling, in terms of the smoke? or lack of it for that matter, that we would uh, have back in, in the 19th century? Probably not. But the 85 grains I use typically drives the bullet I shoot at around 1250. So it's very, very close yeah. to what the, the service round would have would have felt like for sure. The recoil is, I, I don't know, I, I would consider myself to be kind of average. I'm not like a six foot five monster and I'm not a you know four foot nine small person. Um, I can shoot the martini all day, honestly. I can shoot it all day from the prone. I can shoot it all day from the standing. I can shoot it supported, unsupported, kneeling, what have you. It, it, so is it? it's manageable. Okay. That people having bruised shoulders and broken collarbones and all this kind of stuff, I, I don't see it. The Army was trained to shoot. They're professionals. They drilled. 
They got the, the, the minutia of how to hold the rifle and where the butt goes and the repetition of the, 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 the position exercise, which is what it was called, the, the practice of bringing the rifle to the shoulder was, it, I mean, it was part of everybody's, every man would have been drilled excessively on that. And I say excessively, yes, because it was something that was drilled into them from the recruit stage all the way through. Um, the position drill was was something that was it, it's got its own little article in the in the manual, and all that's doing is bringing the rifle from the ready position, like held at the waist, into the shoulder, ready to aim. That's all it is, and the procedure to do that back and forth, back and forth. So you know you're not dealing with a bunch of amateurs who just sort of pick a rifle up and don't really know how to use it, and they fire it and they get out. If you if you don't hold the rifle properly, it's going to hurt. If you don't have the butt of the rifle in your shoulder, it's going to hurt because it's going to slam back. But any rifle will do that, save a 22. So, I, you know, people, savage recoil, you hear a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I, I just, my experience is not that way. Is it heavy? Yes, it is heavy. Is it, you know, uncomfortable? I would not say it's uncomfortable. Of course, that's, subjective because that's what I you know I, I shoot these rifles a lot um, it's not uh, you know a as I say a 22 or a, something like a, a 223 like a, like an AR-15 kind of rifle as some a modern sporting rifle like that it, it, it doesn't have the same kind of signature black powder generally has when you're dealing especially with a like bores like 45 caliber with a large charge behind it it doesn't have the same kind of of recoil sort of what's termed today impulse that it's much more of a boom rather than a crack that, that it's a it's it's a, a fuller um reaction when you fire it the the what you feel is a bit i don't like <laughs> it's hard to describe yeah but it's it doesn't mean it's softer but it's it's pushier it's not quite as sharp right okay so it's more like a hard push than a a snappy yeah, I mean, punch. It, it does. I mean, if, if you uh, and some of the people that might be listening um, ultimately want to sort of see this in action, I, I mean, there's on the channel, uh, there's many, um, you know, instances in sort of the channels. Well, it's a video of me shooting martinis. Hmm. So you can see sort of what it's like in all kinds of different positions. So, you know, when you shoot it unsupported standing, then it's going to it's going to lift up a bit. It's going to kick the rifle, the, the barrel raises and it comes back down to your point of aim kind of thing. And then when I'm shooting it, um, uh, like prone supported in a, in a target application or a workup to kind of, you know, make best uh, target practice, then you'll see it's all my hand is supported. I've got a grip on it and it'll just bang. It'll, it'll move. Of course it'll recoil, but it's not like, you know, you're shaking your arm after and all rubbing your shoulder. Yeah. I, I just don't get that. Perhaps other people that maybe are, um, you know, slighter than I am or smaller or, or whatnot may have issues with, with that kind of thing. And generally speaking, people weren't as big as they are today uh, back in the 19th century. Um, but again, you know, these are trained professionals who are, you know, if the butt is not in the rifle, uh, sorry, the rifle butt is not in the shoulder correctly. I mean, these are things that would have been hammered in recruit training. Now, you know, it's not that high. You lower it half an inch, move it down. It's got to sit right here. Because if you don't do that, you're, you're just going to hurt. You know, if the tip of the, the toe of the butt is sitting on your collarbone and you shoot, yes, it's going to hurt you. But if you have the butt properly in the shoulder, it's just going to oomph mm. and carry on. So I think um, there's a bit of context with the the, the sort of the 
the perception of the the martini's recoil it sounds great doesn't it with the savage recoil and the heat of battle and everyone's got bruised shoulders and they fight through it and they you know uh, overcome the odds so to speak it sounds good and it makes for good uh, uh storytelling yeah uh, but as i say it, it, it's it's manageable and as i say i've i mean typically in a day of shooting i'll fire most 100 rounds maybe at the least like 10 depending yeah. on what i'm doing maybe typically if uh, uh i'm working on a specific video or whatnot it might be 50 and by the end of the day it's like you know, it's just it's a non-issue yeah okay well that's that's really interesting because like you say a lot of people talk about the bruises and how difficult it must have been shooting all day so it's interesting to hear that actually maybe it wasn't as bad as people say the other thing that's an interesting uh, caveat to place on those kind of anecdotal uh, tidbits of history is the fact that ammunition expenditure generally was very low. That there's been a number of studies, and I'd have to get into my notes and books and stuff to to pick those out. But you know, um, at uh, uh, Uruk's drift being something that perhaps is on one extreme, that a small group of men, about a hundred, you know, have access or have gone through twenty thousand rounds. You know, that's that's a lot of ammunition expended by uh, uh, a small number of people, yet over quite a large period of time. But, um, and again, is it Kambula that I'm thinking about in terms of... I think of, it is, yeah. I think, yeah. Is it is it 20 rounds a man over the whole course of the battle? Yeah, I think you even know? less perhaps, but I know exactly what you're saying. So it, it, a lot of uh, people's conceptions of ammunition expenditure you know, are based in sort of a modern context and rightfully so, because that's the modern context, right? In terms of the military expenditure of ammunition, especially nowadays, um, that it comes as a kind of a surprise when you learn that, you know, in terms of rounds per man is something in the neighborhood of 15 or 20. And that was it for a two or three hour battle because battles ebb and they flow and you engage and then the enemy moves away or they, or they attack and they win. And in which case you're not shooting anymore. Um, but, you know, there are these pauses, there's these lulls and, you know, this constant action like you may, you know, the, the perception that you might get from a movie perhaps or, or, or whatnot, just it, it's it it's not the case necessarily. So um, to say that, you know, I've I go out and shoot 70 rounds. Well, you know, in reality, they may have only shot 15 in the course of that man's actual battle or that that company or that section only fired 15 rounds a man. Yeah. And that was, you know. To them, that was a big deal because that was their battle and that was what is in front of them uh, and whatnot. But it's an important caveat to place when you talk about, um, you know, uh, ammunition expenditure and that kind of stuff for sure. Well, that's that's a perfect segue um, into rates of fire because uh, I've read all sorts <laughs> of different different figures. Now, I'm guessing, especially based on what we just said, there's your sort of, you know, your rate of fire at the range you know, and then there's what the guys probably were doing, you know, on average, which, you know, as we've just alluded to, would have been a lot less. I mean, what's your experience? If you were just firing purely for speed, how many rounds do you reckon you could get down, you know, in a minute? Right. Well, uh, I, I've done a video specifically on that. Um, I've actually done two. Um, one is related uh, rate of fire. On the channel, I run um, a sort of a, a series. I just call it the Firepower series. And what I try to do is take um weapons of a neighboring era like say for instance the snyder and the martini or the martini and the metford uh because they branch you know that's the dividing line between the the different um, um adoptions of the different firearms and compare the rates of fire and to say it, so it'll exhibit sort of this the stepping capabilities 
through the era. Um, it's not particularly scientific at all. But so uh, on the channel, there's actually two videos that that feature the Martini. One is obviously, as I just mentioned, dealing and comparing it with the Snyder, and the other is comparing it with the Lee Matford, which is as an eight-round magazine. Um, and as you might expect, it, the Martini fires faster than the Snyder, and it fires slower than the, <laughs> than the Lee Matford. Um, Twelve rounds a minute. I'm just. I'd have to. I'd have to look in my video because I can't remember. Yeah, I mean, 12, 12 uh, rounds exactly is what I'd right. read uh, previously. Uh, so that's I mean, quite interesting. I, think of, on the channel, I do these things. I'm always shooting at a target. Uh, shooting for straight speed into the air is absolutely useless and has no place in any kind of assessment whatsoever. Yeah, you know, you have to hit what you aim at. So you'd say twelve yeah. aimed rounds a minute then. Oh yeah, that's that, yeah. and that's aimed. And I mean, in terms of what I do, it's at, usually at a hundred yards or hundred meters, at a target that's not small, but it's not massive either. I mean, I've used a uh, um, a World War One era figure two, which is about three and a half feet high by about. Um, <laughs> I put my hands up in the thing. <laughs> um, it's about. Mm, 14 inches across okay. you know it's it's made made to represent sort of waist up a human mm. figure um that's still the size i've shot at targets that are um sort of scaled about four foot targets uh, at 100 and so you know sort of human sized targets and, and so generally speaking i'm able to the rate i fire at i'm able to hit them Generally speaking, you know, oh, there might be okay. an anomaly where I don't sight correctly and I miss, but I'm whatever the the targets mounted to in terms of a backing, it's it's hit the backing, it's just missed, you know, the figure by this much. Yeah. Uh, but generally speaking, the, I fire at a rate that I can hit the target because that's what the aim is. The aim is not just to fire bullets. The aim is to fire bullets into something, and that is the important part of any kind of firepower discussion, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Like, who cares if I can fire? 80 rounds a minute with a martini without aiming it. Like, mm. what does that prove? Yeah. It doesn't prove anything because I'm not aiming at anything and I'm not hitting anything. Uh, so in terms, especially in the military context, um, it, which is a good sort of way to enter into the discussion, is that in the military context, rate of fire in the era, one is not trained. It's not something, it's not a skill that's trained at all. Um, and two, it has... I think a it, it's a bit of a red herring in that the the concept of the use of a weapons rate of fire in the era in the context of these battles isn't necessarily and it's a caveat as important as one might think that to be able to fire 10 rounds a minute or 12 rounds a minute is that really a big deal in the context of the way 19th century battles were fought. And in my mind, it, it isn't. Uh, when you look at the, the greater picture and the, the counter to that is obviously, you know, I'm sitting in a spot and I can fire 12 and you can only fire 10 and I've just hit two more, you know, of the enemy than you have. So I'm better. G good. Great. Good for you. I, I, I appreciate that math. I think that in the context generally of a 19th century battle, be it the Zulu War or something in Abyssinia or later in, in Africa, somewhere else, is that fire beyond very close range, 
100, 200 yards, is nearly invariably controlled and done so by firing volleys. These volleys are methodical. They're, they're uh, repetitious, obviously. Um, and they're done because of the nature of the weapons. You don't have automatic weapons. You don't have self-loading weapons. So you need to generate firepower. And in order to do that, you need a lot of people to fire at the same target. This has to be balanced with the fact that you have 70 rounds. Let's just call it for the majority of the era we're talking about. And yeah, if you fire 12 rounds a minute, how many minutes does that give you? Six? And now yeah, you have no fair more points. Yeah. Like, and now what? Well, I'll, I'll just get more. Yeah, well, you know where those more bullets come from? It's back there in the wagon. Yeah. And when I shoot all of those, where do the next ones come from? They're back at some depot somewhere, and it's got to come in, in, on an oxen cart two days away. So this is and this is a feature of, let's just call it, you know, colonial fighting, sort of in these remote locations. And we're talking, of course, in the in the empire context. Uh, that conservation of ammunition is a big deal. It's heavy, it's bulky, it takes up so much space, and it's difficult to move around. And if you waste it, then you're useless. So you have to make sure you use it in the, the most um, you know, expeditious manner, that you can't blast it all away. Uh, but obviously it's there for a reason. You can't win the battle without using it. <laughs> so... When I say that it's a red herring, I think that simply assessing a rate of fire of a weapon doesn't necessarily reflect that it is um, better or worse than either another type of weapon or that that, that has an application necessarily on the battlefield. Yeah. When you are in a position to fire as fast as you can, once the enemy gets close enough that, yep, you know what, we, we need to fire faster because our volleys aren't holding them off. You're talking about seconds before if that enemy decides to run at you that you're only going to be able to put down a, a finite number of rounds. And actually, I did a video on that. Uh, it was to say in the last 100 yards of a rush of an enemy, whether he be armed with a spear and, uh, a shield and spear or making a final assault on your position because he has beat you down and there's just you and another guy beside you, and he's making an assault in the case of a like a, a European war. Um, that that last rush of 100 yards, how long did it take? So I went out and I ran 100 yards as fast as I could with all my kit on, and then I took that time, and I took a slice of rapid firing with the Martini at 100 yards, and I think I fired five rounds as fast as I could. From it was the the video was fired from the prone position, so. You know, given the, the, the there's all I only got five rounds off. So you know, to say that I can, I'm good enough for 12 rounds a minute or something, and I and you can do that minute after minute after minute. The opportunities to do that and put all that punishment into your enemy is not necessarily uh, you, you don't have that capability necessarily because when you do have the opportunity to fire independently as fast as you can, you can only do it for a small amount of time. Now, looking at the way we're talking, it is, you know, sure, so the faster you can fire, the better. Y yes, generally. But um, we're dealing with a small part of a battle, which may not even happen ever. So far and away, fire is controlled at the 
company, half company, or section level, which is just terminology relating to the way the army is organized, and are volleys going to be fired? You can never fire volleys at the, your best rate of fire that you can as an individual. You can never do that. One, it's just people are slower or faster for that matter, and the whole nature of firing a volley is that you want to fire it together. So you'll never get 12 rounds a minute firing in volleys. You just won't. And it'll become ragged because guys are slow, guys drop rounds, whatever it may be. Um, and secondly, you need to, one, allow for smoke to clear because of the nature of firing black powder is there generates a degree of smoke that, unless there's a good stiff breeze that's blowing in the right direction, needs to be mitigated or weighted out because it needs to move. So if you fire 12 rounds a minute as fast as you can and there's 50 of you that are in relatively close proximity – What's the value in shooting 12 rounds a minute when you can only see your target for the first four? Yeah, good point. That's something to consider. That doesn't mean it's the way it is always, but it's something that you need to, when we have these discussions, you need to sort of bring into play. It deals a lot with what I'm interested in, which is, the, as I mentioned before, the mechanics of the army, the, the, the training, the musketry, the way they were trained, and how that you can, you can see that training manifest itself in the anecdotal history and the accounts on the battlefield. Uh, at um, some a lot speaks of those initial engagements uh, or the intermediate engagements once uh, the line has been established outside of the camp and the, the troops have been withdrawn off the heights and you know the Zulu host is presenting itself now um, and the, the firing line has, has been deployed, it's developed and sort of general action has now been joined. And you know that, seems like you just they're there so let's fire as fast as we can and, and whatnot but that part of the battle lasts for quite some time and by all accounts it's fired uh, sorry the, the ammunition is, is expended the firepower is delivered by volleys by these sections or half companies at a time and they roll up and down the line and this is holding the zulu off that it it is effective enough that the, the weapon its capabilities at that range are doing what it's supposed to do. And it's used in the way that the men have been trained, firing in volleys, maintaining a degree of fire control, conserving ammunition, um, and and being effective in doing so. Because as any casual student of the battle will understand that most of the movement towards the, the, the British and the camp happens on the flanks. So, which where, of course, there's less firepower being deployed. Um, and which is, I mean, the, that battle in particular, obviously, is a whole other different discussion. But the, the musketry of the army as the way it's taught is somewhat separated from rate of fire. And that's a, sort of an important thing to understand is that it's not just rate of fire because of the context of the era. That's all. Now, there is an opportunity. I mean, we've talked about volley firing. The second type of fire that is, is used or second technique, as it were, is known as independent fire. And independent firing is used in all types of deployments, whether it's extended, uh, which means the men are spaced out side to side to cover greater frontage, or they're in close order, which means they're shoulder to shoulder, sort of old fashioned style. By the 1870s, that kind of fighting is being, has been sort of superseded because of this type of rifle, actually, this martini style, this breech loading kind of rifle. They realize they, if we fight somebody with these kind of rifles, we can't stand shoulder to shoulder in advance like we did at the Alma 
or at uh, you know at Waterloo or, or at Salamanca. We can't do that anymore because we'll just get shot up. So they realize that the, that they need to to uh, adopt the tactic or adapt tactics that are a little bit less dense, so that we don't present ourselves as a big a big of a target. And uh, this is um, used uh, quite famously, actually, and effectively, which is an important point to add to it at, at, at Islandona. But it's because of the fact that uh, the firepower that you can develop with the Martini is such that you can adopt these kinds of tactics. So it, uh, I mean, it, as you say, the, the musketry, the, the, the drills, the way of training, the, the style of fighting is something that I, really, that's probably the biggest historical aspect to these rifles that I enjoy the most. So thanks to Rob for that. That was absolutely fascinating for me and I'm hoping you feel the same way. Rob knows pretty much everything there is to know about the Martini Henry. In fact, there's so much I cut out to try and keep this to an hour that I'm even thinking of doing a second episode with all the leftover material from the chit chat that Rob and I had. Please do give Rob a follow on YouTube, where he's youtube.com slash British Muzzleloaders. You won't be disappointed, it's a fantastic channel. In the meantime, please have a listen back to the first six episodes of this podcast to get the full story of the Anglo-Zulu War, while I'm busy planning season two. If you want to keep in touch with me or give me any ideas for episodes, please do. You can find me on most social media platforms where I am at Redcoat History, all one word. Sometimes my nose is so deep in books that I may not get back to you quickly, but I will see it and eventually I'll get back to you. Anyway, thanks guys. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I'll be back with a fresh one next month. Take care.